this episode of the Here and Now podcast. This is one of my favourite topics from psychology in the study of what makes us human. It has been the source of continuous debate for centuries, with people typically falling into one of two camps, nature or nurture. Today, we know more than we've ever known about genetics and human behaviour, and this has increased our understanding of what makes us the same, what makes us different, and most importantly, why. In this episode, we're going to explore the history and different sides to the nature versus nurture argument, and hopefully resolve some of the confusion. Don't be surprised if some of what we uncover puts your intuitions to the test. The subject is vast and complex, so there's only so much ground we can cover in the next 20 or 30 minutes, but I encourage you to look to the show notes for a reading list and to take a deeper dive into this remarkable and intriguing topic. But for now, let's hit the highlights. Like many topics in psychology, the nature-nurture argument began with philosophy, In ancient times, which is a fancy way of saying olden days, Hippocrates, who was a physician and philosopher, widely believed that human health and psychology could be explained by the balance of four humours, or bodily fluids. These were black and yellow bile, blood and phlegm. Delightful, huh? Someone with a sallow, melancholic temperament was thought to have a preponderance of black bile, while someone of sanguine, optimistic character had a dominance of blood. The theory of humours led to the practice of bloodletting and many other seemingly medicinal rituals which we would today consider barbaric. It was the publication of Darwin's seminal work on the origin of species in 1859 where he presented his theory of evolution that the idea of hereditary traits occurred to the cousin of Darwin and leading academic Sir Francis Galton. Galton was an explorer in polymath contributing to many disciplines from the study of weather, geography and statistics to psychology and anthropology. Today, a lecture theatre at the University College London carries his name. Galton drew a thread between Darwin's theory of evolution to the seeming heritability of genius and families. Unfortunately, the somewhat misguided logic common in the Victorian age led to Galton inferring that selective breeding could improve the genetic quality of the human population, a field he pioneered known as eugenics. Galton popularised the term nature versus nurture, and conducted many studies to understand the relative influence of nature or the environment on similarities and differences between parents and their children. His research leaned heavily toward the notion that nature is largely responsible for the differences between individuals, a position known as nativism. The impact of his thinking on the importance of nature and his work on eugenics led to several disturbing conclusions regarding racial hygiene, selective breeding, and ultimately holocaust, which continued long into the 20th century. Now, our further understanding of the genetic influence on individual differences and more sensitive awareness of the role of the environment and the presence of individual bias has allowed the conversation to continue in a more balanced and pragmatic form, although the topic remains controversial and highly politicised. On the opposite end of the spectrum are the environmentalists, also known as empiricists. 17th century philosopher John Locke, endowed with long flowing hair and a substantive nose, was one such character. He believed that when we are born, our mind is a blank slate, a so-called tabula rasa. The term tabula rasa entered the literature with Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, and it's funny how related it all is. Locke argued that the mind is gradually filled during the course of life by experience, 
It is therefore the aspects of our environment, such as our family, teachers, friends, culture, and value systems that form and shape us. This tends toward the nurture end of the continuum, which argues that our physical development is primarily determined by nature, but our mental and emotional development is a result of nurture, a position known as behaviorism. Many social scientists and psychologists have studied these questions over the years, and for a long time, and even still today, the most compelling arguments came from the environmentalists. There is an intuitive sense that behaviour is influenced by environment, but our eye colour and height, perhaps, is influenced by our genes, and that is true to a certain extent. But there are limits to such reasoning, and many of our intuitions are actually false. Today, we know more than ever about where on the continuum the balance point actually lies. Before we get there, though, Let's unpack our intuitions about what constitutes nature and nurture so we're all on the same page. Nature describes genetic traits, those instructions embedded within the DNA of every one of the trillions of cells in our bodies. The genetic code that is our DNA has been described by psychologist and behaviour geneticist Robert Plowman as 3 billion steps in a spiral staircase. The number may even be as high as 6 billion if we take into account the two strands of somatic cellular DNA. We inherit our DNA from our parents, half from each, at the moment of conception, and they determine much about not only our physical traits, but many behavioural ones as well. There are some traits which we describe as innate, that we all have two forward-looking eyes and two legs and belong to the species Homo sapiens. But genes then work to influence the nuance of how we inhabit that predefined framework. For instance, the way the brain develops varies as much between individuals as foot size or amount of body hair. Genes influence the amount of fast-twitch muscle fibres we have or how short or tall we are, and importantly, our predisposition towards certain things. This is an important concept which we'll return to shortly. Then on the nature side, we have the influences from our environment. These are largely social, but they may also be chemical, such as what the fetus was exposed to in the womb if the mother was a smoker, drank alcohol, took drugs or other medications. Those influences are not encoded into the genes of the fetus, but they may influence how they are expressed, whether they are activated or suppressed, and thus influence the development of the child, both in the womb and as it develops in life. Nature is also responsible for learned behaviour. As suggested by Locke, the human mind is to some extent a blank slate ready to be impressed upon by sensory experience, and as we know from previous episodes, it is plastic and can adapt and change throughout the course of our lives. This notion leads to the idea of freedom to develop an identity, so-called self-authoring. The environment is therefore responsible for instilling within the individual the rules that govern existence, culture, values and morals. And this suggests that we are not born with an innate sense of right and wrong, rather we develop it and it is relative to our environment. Of course, the notion of morality is another fundamental argument from philosophy, and we'll return to that one in a future episode. The very way that we exist and interact within the world is determined by the values that we learn from our parents and society, and this even extends to how language shapes the way we think and relate to one another. There is clearly a plausible argument to be made that neither nature nor nurture in their entirety explain human behaviour but rather that it's a result of interactions between the two, a continuum of environmental contributions which can alter our genetic predispositions towards certain traits. There are plenty of examples, diet, exercise, lifestyle choices like smoking, exposure to certain environments and pathogens, the type of work we do, and even emotional events and life stresses, abuse or trauma for instance. 
These factors can work to activate certain genes or suppress others, fundamentally altering who we are. And the impact of this cannot be overstated. The prevalence of cancer, heart disease, stroke and other conditions can often be attributed to environmental influences which alter our genetic destiny in some way. It is not enough to simply say we have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer or heart disease. Our lifestyle choices or circumstances may alter that predisposition in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. This leads us to the field of epigenetics, which studies how gene expression is altered without altering our DNA. Epigenetics is what tells different cells to do different things. DNA carries the instructions for everything about us, but not every cell needs to know about what every other cell needs to know. Epigenetics is the highlighter that marks the relevant parts of the DNA. A liver cell only needs to know how to grow and behave as a liver cell, for instance. In the case of cell development, these epigenetic influences are well established, so we always turn out more or less the same. But epigenetic influences continue to act on our cells throughout our lifetime and can lead to the expression or suppression of different genes at different times. This introduces an element of variability and randomness, which makes us not only unique from each other, but also in this life that we are living. Imagine, if you will, that you could split into two versions of yourself. Both versions would end up different in many subtle and not-so-subtle ways as a result of epigenetics and the influence of the environment. This is precisely why identical twins aren't exactly the same. Interestingly, though, many alterations to genes become heritable, that is, they are often passed to offspring. Epigenetics therefore accounts for many of the changes that occur between generations. Our genes are complicated and really work in isolation. Rather, gene expression of behavioural traits is polygenic. There is no gene for intelligence or how much television our children will watch, for instance. But rather, our behaviour is influenced by combinations of hundreds or even thousands of genes. This explains the uniqueness and variety among people. No two of us are alike, even though we inherit so much from our parents. There are always exceptions, though, and sometimes individual genes can have singularly dramatic consequences. The Huntington gene, for instance, encodes a specific protein which, when functioning correctly, is a normal part of human physiology. When the Huntington gene is defective, however, the protein it encodes is also defective, and this eventually results in a variety of health and cognitive problems when it manifests itself in adulthood or in some severe cases in childhood. And we know this as Huntington's disease. Fortunately, Huntington's disease is rare, as is a gene acting in isolation with such devastating consequences. Returning to our nature versus nurture argument, we have established that we are a bit of both, so really we should be thinking of it not as an argument, but a partnership. We're the result of nature and nurture. Our DNA and genes certainly inform who we are and who we will become, but this changes along the way as a result of epigenetic changes and the influence of our environment. This sounds straightforward enough, but when thinking about what is environmental and what is genetic, well, the lines become blurred and actually downright surprising. I'm going to draw quite a bit from a book entitled Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, written by Robert Plowman, who I mentioned earlier. Plowman has spent more than 40 years researching the role of genetics on human development and behaviour, and has been at the forefront of many breakthroughs in the field. He has found that while 50% of who we are is genetically determined, about 50% comes from our environment. But that's only true in the broadest sense. When taking a closer look at more specific behaviour and influences, the balance swings far from our intuitive sense of what is truly an environmental influence. In fact, Plowman goes as far to say that what we think of as environmental events 
over which we have no influence, are in fact genetically determined, or at least influenced. How can that be? How can your DNA possibly have an influence over factors from the external environment? I can understand that genes determine whether my daughter's eyes are brown or blue, but it is how well I and her teachers nurture her education and the quality of the school that she goes to that will ultimately determine how well she does academically. It is her family environment that will determine how likely she is to one day become divorced, and stressful life events will just happen to her, as they happen to all of us. And most certainly, it is environmental what the weather will be like today. The reality is, however, that genes play a tremendous role in influencing all of these outcomes, maybe even the weather. To understand this bold statement, we have to first think about cause and effect. In science, and perhaps life in general, it is impossible to say with confidence that one thing causes another. We can never be 100% certain that one thing caused another with no other explanation, and we can also never be 100% certain that the relationship is acting in one direction. Did someone become good at playing guitar because they practiced a lot? Or did they practice a lot because they are good at playing the guitar? Or borrowing from Plowman's own example, it is true that the number of churches in a city is correlated with the level of alcohol consumption. Now, does that mean that religion drives us to drink, or that drinking makes us more religious? Or is an alternative explanation that cities simply have more people, and more people mean more churches and pubs? The best we can do, and indeed the best that psychology and scientific research can hope to achieve, is to identify relationships between factors and the size and strength of those relationships. So science has found that genetics contribute significantly to almost every aspect of our lives, but it is not a 100% contribution. The environment will always have a role to play. But surprisingly, the role of the environment is at best random and idiosyncratic. There are no systematic and consistent influences from the environment. The only identifiable influence is from your genes. Take a child's propensity for reading, for example. Intuitively, we would like to think that if a child's parents read to her every night, then she will be more interested in books and do better at learning to read. But we are inferring cause and effect. More reading to the child makes her a better reader. But what if the relationship works the other way around? The child enjoys stories and being read to and learning to read. Therefore, she encourages her parents to read to her. If a parent reads her child a story, but the child is restless and disinterested, the parent may try again another night maybe a night after that, but eventually they're likely to give up or the stories will be short and more about the pictures. But if the child is settled and attentive, engaged with the story and interested in even more complex stories, then the parent will continue to do what makes the child happy. And if the parent does not want to read a story to the child, the child will whine and ask for a story. The child will drive the behaviour of her parent. The child in this case has a genetic predisposition toward reading, They didn't become interested in reading because the parent forced it upon her. It wasn't an environmental influence. It was genetic. One of the primary tools that has informed our understanding of the role of genetics is twin studies. Twins offer an ideal experimental um, battleground for understanding the differing effects of environmental and genetic influences. Monozygotic twins, that is identical twins, share the same DNA. So it's easy to imagine an experiment that looks at how genetically identical people develop when they have different environmental influences. There are not that many examples of identical twins that have been separated at birth, but there are still enough to be useful for research. Now, research can examine three aspects. The differences between an adopted identical twin and her adoptive family and siblings. The differences between the twins raised apart. 
and the differences between the children and their biological parents. Fortunately, many studies have considered exactly these factors, and the results are surprising. Take stressful life events, for instance. In a Swedish study, a standardised questionnaire was given to middle-aged twins separated at birth to rate their exposure to stressful life events that have occurred throughout their lives. Things like financial difficulties, relationship struggles and illness. It was found that identical twins had highly correlated scores, regardless of whether they were raised together, compared to fraternal twins, that is, twins who are not identical, who correlated only slightly. This suggests that DNA had a significant influence on how stressful life events were. But how could that be? Stressful life events are things that happen to us. How can our genetics influence things that happen in life? Well, it's a matter of perspective. How an individual raised their life and whether things that occurred were stressful and how stressful they were comes down to their perception of those events. For one person, an event may be overwhelming, but for another, it hardly caused a bump in the road. Their personality, whether they are more resilient or happy-go-lucky, somehow leads them to interpret life events in different ways. And personality is definitely genetically influenced. We don't place objective, consistent value on life events. They affect us all in different ways, ways that are determined by our DNA. Plowman also cites divorce as an example of a stressful life event influenced by our DNA. It is well accepted that children of divorced parents are more likely to become divorced themselves. We intuitively put this down to the environmental influence. Children observe the dysfunction in their own families, and they absorb these experiences into their personalities, so the stage is set for a similar eventuality later in their own lives. However, adopted children do not follow this pattern. If their biological parents were not divorced, but their adoptive parents were, they are more likely to not become divorcees themselves. The relationship between genetic likelihood of becoming divorced is only 40%. It is not a concrete predictor of divorce, as there are other factors at play, but none of them are singularly larger than the role of genetics. The idea that life just happens to us is deeply flawed. Our DNA informs more about our lives than we ever imagined. You're probably wondering about the weather. How on earth can my genes be responsible for the weather? Well, there's a long story and a short story. The long story says that your ancestors adapted through evolution to the weather of their environment. This could be darker skin tone in hotter climes or shorter limbs and squatter bodies as seen in the Eskimo people who live in extremely cold climates. They haven't so much influenced the weather as adapted to it, genetically. Over generations, we have inherited some features from our ancestors and tend to migrate to areas where the prevailing conditions suit our genetic predisposition. In an age of globalisation and easy travel and migration, Perhaps this factor is no longer relevant, but it also offers people the opportunity to move to where they are most comfortable. And what do you think influences that decision? Well, their genes. The short story is about perceptions again. How hot or cold or wet or sunny you think it is, is largely down to your interpretation. Sure, there are objective measures found in meteorology. We can measure rainfall and sunlight hours, but what matters is how we think about the weather. Our psychological perceptions are our reality, so if we experience the weather as being excessively hot or cold or wet or dry, we will think that is actually the case. We are the worst judge of reality because we are subjects of it, experiencing it through our own perceptions, and our perceptions are in large part informed by our genes. So in this way, if you were asked, do you think the weather was good or bad last summer, you and I might have quite different opinions. Our perceptions, and indeed our genes, have to truly determine the weather, at least in our own minds. Now, Plowman is at pains to say 
that our genes are not our destiny. They account for the largest and only systematic factor in determining our development and the course of our lives, but the environment still plays a key role. The misunderstanding, though, is that environmental influences are as predictable or as obvious as they seem. Life is rather the combination of myriad coincidences, serendipitous events, good luck, bad luck, and idiosyncratic, non-repeatable factors that interact with our genes to chart the course of our lives. Nature, therefore, means influence, not determination, and nurture is not entirely or exclusively events and circumstances from our environment, but the randomness of the world that we confront in every moment of every day. A single generation that exhibits a striking talent or propensity for something will also tend to shift back toward the average in subsequent generations, a so-called regression to the mean. Plowman says genetic influences are probabilistic propensities, not predetermined programming, and heritability describes what is, but not what could be. So while you can change, it takes work to fight against who you are. Perhaps it is better to simply accept your DNA and the version of yourself that is written within every cell of your body and go with the genetic flow. There may be a different reason for why we'd want to resist our genes though. If we have a genetic propensity towards depression or substance abuse and addiction, then we would be well placed to work toward creating an environment and lifestyle that helps us to manage our thoughts and avoid those temptations. And as genetics helps to further our knowledge of who we are at the level of our DNA, we can anticipate our propensities and manage them proactively, rather than become victims of them, condemned to our fate. If society could accept the role of genetics in informing who we are, then stigma and social exclusion could be minimised and we could help people through knowledge, not condemn them as responsible for their own destruction or circumstances. Equally, our genes may be our best defence against unhealthy influences. We often consider peer pressure to be responsible for leading young people astray, but it is not a guarantee. Take smoking, for example. Smoking is hugely influenced by peer pressure, yet amongst most groups of teenagers who take up the habit, there is often one or two who don't. Despite the pressure of the environment, some people just don't want to take it up. And whether those that do stick with it throughout their adult lives or give it up as they mature is also a matter of genetics. It is not to say parents have no influence on their children. They do. But the reasons why one child takes up smoking or drugs and another doesn't is not so much to do with their environment, family or peers but their genetic predisposition towards those things. So parents can give themselves a break. No matter how hard you try, your children will always be who they are, just as you are you. The best we can do is impart our values and provide a safe and loving environment. A large part, perhaps the largest part, comes from within. Another amazing fact about our nature is that our genes become even more heritable the older we get. That is to say, at a young age, children may be more strongly influenced by the family environment. But as they get older, they tend to become the version of themselves that was determined by their genes. This has been shown by adoption studies, where children in adopted families tend to follow the behavioural traits of their adoptive parents and siblings. But when they get older and eventually leave home and move through adulthood, their traits are more closely related to their biological parents. This is surprising, as it seems intuitive that as we age and have more and more experiences, these would tend to shape who we become. But to the contrary, we revert towards our genetic predispositions and share the similarities to our environmental influences, those that we accrued in childhood and those that we experience in our lives. The implications of this are important, as influence from parents, peers and teachers may only extend so far. However, understanding who you are through careful self-assessment and reflection and accepting that which is inherent to you may offer you the chance to truly live to your potential and find fulfilment and happiness. 
Understanding where you lie genetically on the continuum of concepts like psychological capital, resilience and other emotions can help you to know yourself and where to focus your efforts to become a better version of yourself. Recent developments in science are beginning to unlock the secrets of the genetic code, which offer huge potential, but also a minefield of risks and ethical questions. I'm talking about CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. Your DNA is a long string of nucleotides, billions of them. Sequences of them are used to build proteins, which are the building blocks of cells. Genes are specific sequences of DNA, and you have about 20,000 of them. As I mentioned, while there are single genes for some things, most of the time, traits are the result of combinations of many genes. Interrupting, reorganizing, and editing DNA results in editing genes. Bacteria, they have a natural defense against viruses which detects the virus DNA and sends out a version of the DNA with an enzyme called Cas9. The Cas9 enzyme acts as a pair of molecular scissors. When the bacteria's version of the DNA aligns with the same sequence within the virus DNA, the Cas9 snips the DNA sequence, disabling the virus. Scientists have figured out how to use this process to target specific gene sequences, utilizing Cas9 to snip DNA and remove and insert new gene sequences in animals and humans. There is obviously far more to it than that, but I'm interested in the implications of the technology rather than the details. Edited genes may change the DNA in the individual, and those changes could die with the carrier. Or they could be germline mutations, which the carrier passes on to their offspring. How those changes carry on in subsequent generations, and whether they cause other mutations with negative consequences, is not yet well understood. And as such, CRISPR-Cas9 is still in its infancy, while the ethics of it have worked out. But is the potential and temptation offered by CRISPR too much to bear? Has the ship already sailed for those with the means to invest in the technology that can enable us to alter the building blocks of life? Think of the term designer babies. Imagine if you could choose not only the gender of your baby or their eye colour, but fundamental aspects of their personality. As we have seen, genes are the most influential aspect of our lives, so altering genes is not simply a case of altering physical characteristics. Gene editing technology opens the door to designing minds and behaviour. We are only beginning to understand behaviour, so what Pandora's box will be opened if we begin to play God with our own creations? We need to return to eugenics to be reminded of just how dark things can get when we attempt to play God and manipulate people, and eventually, populations. I introduced Francis Galton at the beginning of this episode as the father, excuse the pun, of behavioural genetics. He was responsible for bringing the term nature-nurture into popular usage, and he also coined the term, and in fact the whole study, of eugenics. Galton advocated for selective breeding, stating, What nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. Surprisingly, eugenics gained popularity in the mainstream, although more so in the United States than in Britain. As early as 1896, a law was passed in the state of Connecticut, prohibiting those with epilepsy or a feeble mind from marrying lest they have children. A Race Betterment Foundation was established in 1911, which assembled a pedigree registry for those deemed most suitable for procreation. Not surprisingly, these were members of high society, intellectuals and social leaders, and they advocated for the exclusion of immigrants, the poor and the disabled. And this led somewhat inevitably to the enactment of widespread sterilization programs for patients of mental institutions. The program began in California and was eventually adopted by 33 states and took place from 1909 until 1979. During this period, at least 20,000 people were involuntarily sterilized. The program wasn't limited to the mentally challenged, however. 
It was also used to sterilize between 25 and 50% of Native American women between 1970 and 1979, most without their consent. Some even took place while the women were undergoing other surgical procedures, such as an appendectomy. The exact number of Native American women sterilized during this period is unknown, but it is almost certainly in the tens of thousands. 1979 was not that long ago. As horrifying as this is, we haven't even mentioned the Nazis yet. The Jewish Holocaust, which saw 6 million Jews and another 6 million of other races murdered, was the end of a long build-up which began in Germany in the 1930s. Inspired by the eugenics movement in Britain and the US, Adolf Hitler began to formulate his ideas around racial hygiene during the 1920s and early 30s. When he rose to power in Germany, he quickly enacted a policy of sterilization of those afflicted with disability or hereditary disease. By 1940, this policy had extended to lethal injection or gassing of thousands of residents of mental institutions throughout Germany in an effort to cleanse the population of, according to him, their inferior genes. But he didn't stop with mentally disabled people. Even the deaf and blind were done away with. Hundreds of thousands of people murdered before the final solution had even been conceived. Sorry to end this episode on such a dark note but we must be reminded of history so as to avoid repeating its horrors and mistakes. We are the result of our genes, passed down to us over generations. It is a lottery to some extent. We are who we are, but we are all human. We all bring something to the table, and the influence of the environment through modifications to our genes, through epigenetics and our behaviour, through circumstances and experience, mean our future is not mapped out at the moment of conception. While our vanity and idealism may make technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 sound appealing, we must understand the risk to our humanity of underestimating its power. Gene editing may rid us of genetic diseases and complications that cause untold suffering, but it may also deprive us of the richness and variety that makes us all unique and in our own way, human. We are who we are because of nature and nurture. There is no destiny preordained in our genes. We are the result of a recipe, and we need not try to change what comes out of the oven. We can add a dollop of cream or a lashing of syrup, perhaps a side of bacon, but we should accept that we are the product of that recipe, and we should read to our children and teach them right from wrong and educate them as best we can. Life is as much about chance as anything else, so why give up control over those small things which we can influence, even if it might really be an illusion? And while my nature is different to yours, we are 99% the same. Billions of steps on the DNA ladder makes me me and you you, and only 1% of them are different. We can be as different as we can possibly be in that 1%, but what is important is what makes us the same, our humanity. And that is what we must nurture. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.